Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane. So shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 236th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a 31-year-old actor, singer, and songwriter who burst onto the scene and became one of Hollywood's top young stars over the past decade, first through viral videos on the web, then through a number of hit songs, then as an acting and singing sensation on Fox's Golden Globe-winning Glee, for which he received a songwriting Emmy nomination in 2015, and, most recently, as a star of the FX limited series The Assassination of Gianni Versace, American Crime Story, which is nominated for 18 Emmys, including his own nomination for Best Actor in a Limited Series or a TV Movie, an award he is favored to win, Darren Chris. Over the course of our conversation, Chris and I discussed a wide range of topics, including his Filipino-American biracial heritage, his early commitment to becoming an actor, the importance of his time as an undergrad at the University of Michigan, his pre-Glee successes with his Chicago Musical Theater Company Star Kid Productions, and struggles eking out a living as a piano player at Maggiano's at the Grove, how he landed his career-defining parts on two Ryan Murphy shows, first as preppy high school student Blaine Anderson on Glee, and then as serial killer Andrew Cunanan on the assassination of Gianni Versace, and the rewards, challenges, and sexual politics, such as casting a heterosexual actor as LGBTQ characters of both, plus much more. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by Lacey Rose, our executive editor of television coverage, to discuss a number of TV-related topics with the final round of Emmy voting now underway, but in particular, her cover story from our August 15th issue entitled The Reluctant Return of Jim Carrey for which she scored a rare interview with one of the comedy world's funniest figures of the last 30 years. Lacey, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Scott. Sure. So first, how and why did this come about now? Well, it, it had been long in the works. He's somebody who I was sort of fascinated by and wanted to know where had he been and what it took to actually get him back on the screen. Because he um, is coming back soon on September 9th. Because he's 9. coming back on September 9th to Kidding, which is a Showtime uh, dramedy. I think that word is a little bit silly and there's there's not a whole lot of funny in, right. in this. But it is, it is a show that does sort of explore something that if you know anything about Jim Carrey, hits close to home, which is this idea of this guy who has a public face, which is very different from his actual personal world yeah. and those two things are sort of in conflict well he's playing a guy who is sort of like a mr roger style tv icon but who's 
private life, as you refer to here, going to hell? is going to hell. I loved what Showtime's chief David Nevin said in your piece, quote, I love this idea that Jeff Pickles, the character that Jim's playing, could capture both the big, silly Jim Carrey that you love from Ace Ventura and Dumb and Dumber, but also the heavy, weighty Jim Carrey of Eternal Sunshine, close quote. And he really is a terrific, dramatic actor. We saw that in The Truman Show 20 years ago. We saw it in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind six years after that. Man on the Moon. Man on the Moon. What do you think about this? Is this actually something that, you know, from your sense is, is likely to work? Yeah, I mean, A, what this is, is a reunion with Michelle Gondry, who did Eternal Sunshine. Right. So I think that is a huge piece of why he is is back and why he agreed to sign on. I mean, Michelle was the, the linchpin for him. I think that, you know, are the, is, is this going to have a huge monster audience? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Is this going to be a, a celebrated sort of more of a, a niche play? Hopefully. Mm-hmm. I think that we're living in a universe now with 500 plus shows where you can be, you know, a show for somebody and not necessarily for everybody. And I think there is, I mean, judging from how widely read the article was, I think there's definitely an appetite for Jim and sort of seeing him again. And again, I mean, as as David Nevins noted, I I do think you're able in, in this show to see sort of both sides of him and and this show sort of does capture that duality in a way that I think is is special. Yeah, I mean I think there is a whole generation of which I believe you and I are a part that really like grew up on this guy. He was the biggest thing going and as you mentioned in the article, the first twenty million dollar man. The first guy to get twenty million dollars a picture and that was for the cable guy. Yeah. But I think that if you are tuning in and looking for Ace Ventura that's not the guy you're going to get. And I think he that's something that he sort of struggled with for many, many, many years and and probably a piece of why we haven't seen him for so long, which is that an audience sort of wanted Ace Ventura. And a guy like that can only do Ace Ventura so many times and he wants to stretch and he wants to do more. And and there's that push and pull that you see from a lot of these comedians and and also the nature of comedy and and what's funny changes and evolves. Right. We've seen that with Adam Sandler, I think. We've seen that with Adam Sandler. And yet there is on Netflix, there is an audience of that. But but yeah, I mean, I think the nature of of funny does evolve and some people evolve with it and some people don't. Well, Jim is an interesting and odd guy. This much is clear from the Emmy-nominated Netflix documentary Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond, which chronicles his bizarre behavior during the making of the 1999 Andy Kaufman biopic that you mentioned earlier, Man on the Moon. And in, you know, the other places where he's less and less frequently popped up in recent years, such as the Comedians in Cars episode with Jerry Seinfeld, what is at the root of this? Did fame just kind of drive him a bit wacky or I know there's even one point in the article where you say I love what he's saying but I wish I could understand what he's, what he's talking he about. He lost me a little bit. Yeah. I will I will fully admit he did he did lose me a couple of times. He is he is on an existential journey, a philosophical, spiritual journey that I can't tell you I'm on. I appreciated it. Um but yes, no, he did lose me one or two times, but that's okay. Yeah. And and he by the way, he recognized that that he was losing me. Right. You know, I think that 
I think that there are a couple of things going on. I think that Jim and Andy, that the making of the man on the moon, which he is nominated for an Emmy for, Mm -hmm. was a case of he threw himself into this role and effectively became Andy Kaufman, which I think as you're watching this documentary is, it's jarring because he, I mean, he behaves in a way when he's playing his alter ego that you can't (laughs) believe. I mean, he's crashing a car. He's storming into Steven Spielberg's office, you know, wanting to, critique his his work that you sort of can't believe in. And I, I you know, Jim's producing partner and very close friend, I thought was funny. He said that the reactions to the documentary were sort of you had the his actor friends who came up to him afterwards said, yeah. you know, please if you see Jim, tell him thank you so right. much for for sharing your truth. And then you had these producers who were like, what the <laughs> hell was that? But I think that 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 those are the responses to it. In terms of the sort of the the wackiness. Yeah, look, I think that Jim Carrey came up at a very sort of different time. I think the level of fame he had was sort of unparalleled. He was you know, the, one of the most famous people in the world. It was not at a time where you were sort of living your life on Instagram and got to go right. everywhere and sort of live your life, even if it was before the cameras. So as a result, I do think that his world, and he was honest about this, is quite small. And it is, you know, he lives behind these sort of gates of his home. And, you know, that's where he does his art. And then he brings in his friends come to him there, which is not to say he doesn't sort of get to go out and, you know, be a grandfather and and live in the world, but he's not living in the world like you or I are living in the world. And he really never was. You talk about this childhood that he had that was pretty complex and his father lost his job and suddenly they're living in a tent and all kinds of bizarre stuff going back all the way from then, spanning through the recent pretty tragic and still, I think, somewhat shrouded in mystery Mm -hmm. death of his girlfriend. Ex-girlfriend, yeah. So... I think it just seems like he's never lived a conventional life. I think that that's absolutely right. I think that's often you see these people, I mean, who are as, as funny and as, as over the top and, and large as, as he is. Yeah, I think there's often some pain underneath that. I think he's quite open with that pain. And and I think that, you know, some of these things that he does, whether they're cathartic or whether it's just a release of, of some kind, yeah, you try and find the funny at, or or the art because otherwise it's just pain. Right. Well, one of the main ways that he's been in touch with his adoring fans has been in recent years through political outspokenness in the form of art and yep. sort of I don't think it's even fair to call it political cartoons because these are pretty detailed, beautiful things that he then tweets out. What's that about? Well, it's interesting. You know, he, first off, you go to his home and it is a gallery of Jim Carrey work. I mean, it is crazy. Every inch of every wall has a painting, has a sculpture, has a something. And sculptures in his backyard that are absolutely enormous. So that in itself, I mean, was sort of stunning the, just how prolific he is and his ability to sort of stretch across different genre. Mm -hmm. In terms of the political cartoons, if we want to call them those, I mean, he... People have called it, people in his his world have called it protest art. Uh, I think that's a fair description. He argues that he has no choice. That this sort of comes out. He sits up late at night, like all of us, watching you know, the watching news. the news and screaming at the <laughs> right, television screen. Right. I think I scream and then I turn it off and I go to right, bed. Right. He 
turns it off and starts creating art with it. And I think it is, for him, it is catharsis. It is, you know, he says he needs to sort of make something out of it. He yeah. need, and, and at the same time, he needs to sort of log it. Needs to sort of, this is what's happening, yeah. and and each day. But yeah, he's definitely gotten, you know, there's the political fervor in this guy is, is real, and he's angry. Well, and to keep that in check, he has something happen that not all of us have the luxury of having, which I, I sometimes myself wish I did, which is, I think he has several, what does he have, three people <laughs> that says, bet something before he tweets it? He's, he, he, A, he does not have access to his own account. Okay. <laughs> um, no, I don't know if I fully believe that, but he right, claims he right. does not have access to his own account, and he says that at least three people sign off on every tweet. <laughs> Interestingly, he would not, the only thing he would not tell me was who, outside of his assistant, those other two people are. Wow. And I think it is a rogue rotating group but yeah he you know he was interesting on it and and this is also sort of speaks to that level of i don't know if it's fear it's concern it's but about sort of being this sort of public persona that he he's you know his whole point was i need a buffer someone in my position needs a buffer it's it's dangerous to have a button in my pocket where i can you know hit it and all of a sudden my message is out to the world i also think he is someone who spent and he was honest about this years having people around him say, you're crazy, stop. <laughs> you can't say <laughs> um, that. You can't say that, right. you can't do that. And I think you've seen him on enough talk shows and right. seen him doing sort of wacky, zany right. things or where it was probably good to have someone saying, don't do that. And now right. he has three people saying, <laughs> mm, maybe you want to tell him this one Plus, now. after Roseanne, I'm sure Showtime will keep an eye on these yeah, at I least. I think that's probably, I think buffers are, buffers are a good thing. Right. Well, Jim Carrey now has a 30-year-old daughter and an 8-year-old grandson. So if that makes you feel old, sorry, but that is the the fact, folks. And he will be on TV for the first time, I guess. Since In Living Color. Since In Living Color in the 80s and early Early 90s. 90s. Coming back September 9th. Check it out on Showtime. And also check out Lacey Rose's cover story, The Reluctant Return of Jim Carrey. Lacey, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. And now for my interview with Darren Chris which was recorded at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter in Los Angeles. Darren, thanks so much for coming in. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Getting right into it. Oh, right there, yeah. Wow. (laughs) I was born and raised in San Francisco, and my folks are a real American love story in the fact that, you know, I'm first generation, my mom's an immigrant, from the Philippines. They met here in Los Angeles, incidentally, mm. I think in the late 70s, early 80s. And my dad was uh, son of a car salesman in Detroit. And he was, uh, my dad himself was a Navy man. So he kind of grew up all over the world and his own college education was was in Southeast Asia and, and you know, working for all kinds of places in Europe. And he, my dad is, is a very traveled worldly dude. And my mom is a very worldly woman by way of having been the youngest of seven, having made it across the sea to somehow make it to the United States. And so their whole getting together is a is a really amazing, very, again, American tale. Yeah. And I am definitely my parents' son, for sure. <laughs> well, let me ask you, I, so obviously, as you've just referenced, you are biracial. But you've also said in a number of interviews I've read that just by the way it's worked out, you don't necessarily appear to be. Yeah, I think I've learned a lot of the nomenclature in this past year because yeah. I've never really had to answer to it or talk yeah. about it. Not because I didn't want to, it just yeah. never came up. So yeah. 
you know, this this gets very sensitive with yeah. a lot of people. And it's been a cool learning process because, you know, people are very protective and serious about mm-hmm. representation and, and proper language as, mm-hmm. as they have every right to mm-hmm. be. So I've kind of learned what is the how to sort of navigate these things yeah. i think what i uh, what i've what i've learned the most is uh white passing <laughs> is the word like i've said in the past for many years like oh, i'm just a white dude i say that sort of as like politely because i don't right. assume people know what i look like so i use right. that in whatever convenient comical way i can use that right. whenever I, I never really thought twice about it but I, i'll do it now and people are like well you know you actually are not technically a white guy. I'm like, yeah, well, okay, yes, sure. I'm a white passing dude. Right. But the reason why I say that is because, yeah, in the past year alone, it's been it's actually been a treat to kind of talk about my ethnic background. I've never thought it, it was something people would ever really take an interest in. It's always been one of my favorite parts about mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. I've been really, you know, lucky that just that's just kind of who I am. I've always, I've always some- really enjoyed it. So it is fun to talk about. Well, was it something that, you know, as a kid factored in in any way, good, bad or otherwise? The good, certainly because I, I grew up in the Bay Area, which is a, like a predominantly Asian community. And not only that, but particularly Filipino, especially mm-hmm. in the where I went to high school. There's sort of a rich Filipino culture there. And so I think when people... Especially, you know, as a teenager, when other kids found out that I was Filipino, they thought it was like the coolest thing. And I thought it was the coolest (laughs) thing. Like it's something I've always been really proud of. And it's such a really exciting point of entry to meet people when when you say that to your peers, because suddenly you have this like, you know, edge that I thought was really, really neat. But the thing that I've been delicate with and unfortunately in in media, just depending on what I've said, you know, things get taken out Mm -hmm. of context and it's really upsetting. But it's good. It's an unfortunate, necessary evil because you kind of understand how seriously these things, you know, are taken by people. But I remember I said something about, I think it just, it read like I was somehow running away from being, you know, half Filipino or what did I say? Oh, uh, I think maybe what you're talking, I saw one thing where you're saying you don't see yourself as Asian American. Oh yeah. It was was something really terrible like that. And I was, it was was really unfortunate. Uh, God, what did it? Oh, I said that I'm, I'm lucky that I don't look Filipino or something like that. And it was an unfortunate sort of set of words that was taken out of context, but it was the conclusion of a very, very important fact, which I, I think is very important to remind people, mm-hmm. which is why I use the, the white passing thing as a sort of umbrella statement for my background, is that there are so many men and women that have faced a significant amount of obstacles, professionally or personally, perhaps, that they've had to get over in order to stake a claim in certain areas of life and so many of these resilient men and women are a source of inspiration and admiration for people of all gender race whatever whatever litany of unfortunate stereotypical obstacles that those those traits inherently present so for me to say that I have also felt those and I have faced these hardships is is a fucking lie and is disrespectful to those people and unfair so to say that you know as as a biracial person or any person of any minority heritage that I've gone through this struggle it that's just that that's capitalizing on someone else's struggle that I really didn't have to go through by way of the way that I look and in that regard right I have been lucky that that was not an obstacle and so I remember trying to articulate that in so many words and the only thing that came out was the very end right. lucky that I don't look Filipino and I was like no 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 I'm not saying that. no well what <laughs> uh, you so just said is really the fuller picture it makes a lot more sense yeah so, it does yeah. and that's something that I think 
a lot of people try to be sensitive about, and it's something I'm incredibly aware of. But it, again, it's that, when I see that stuff, I I just laugh because I go, "That's so unfair!" Like I love it's like one of my favorite sure. things about myself. No, I'm glad we got to talk about. Yeah, it. yeah. So it seems like from a very early age you were drawn to acting. I want to ask you why that was, and also what motivated you to do something that not many. I guess seven-year-olds would do, which is to pick up the phone and and kind of do an investigation about what it actually means to be an actor, what it's like to be an actor. Can you share what that was all about? I love that you know the story. So uh, Robin Williams was was a massive inspiration for me, as he was for a lot of people, but particularly to me as a kid in San Francisco, because if you had an interest in the performing arts and you grew up in Los Angeles or New York, there's sort of a proximity and accessibility to that life because you may have, you know, I don't know, parents at your school that do this or, 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 or kids that are doing mm-hmm. it professionally at a young age, at least in a, in a higher volume than, than other places in the world. And San Francisco is no slouch. I mean, it's a major metropolitan city. and But, you know, it's not the hub of entertainment mm-hmm. by any means. So speaking of parents at my school, Robin Williams was a parent at the school that wow. I went to. He wasn't when I started going there. Mm-hmm. But he was a figure from San Francisco that yeah. lived in San Francisco. And did um, Mrs. Doubtfire And San Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> directed by Chris Columbus, yeah. who was also a dad at my school. And okay. these, were the two, these were two guys that had entertainment presence in San Francisco, which is why so many of those films, Stepmom and mm-hmm. a lot of those were, were shot in San Francisco. And I thought it was so cool that these figures could have a life there. And it just it just made it more real to me. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in the the really ripe pocket of what we now call the Disney Renaissance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those while people think it's cute, you know, it's nostalgic now. And people love talking about those Disney movies on a much more deep, profound level those movies really raise like a huge generation of storytellers, whether you're uh, a writer or an animator mm-hmm. or a director or an actor, I mean, or just a, or <laughs> just a regular old 30 something in that working in a law firm. And those movies to me, you know, th- those are things that were accessible to kids, but really introduced a lot of quality into the way that, especially if you had an interest in storytelling mm-hmm. in a way that these things could be done. And so you know, I loved Aladdin and I loved the genie and I loved everything about that film and what it, you know, how it made me feel and how it made, how it tied strangers together. And while I couldn't have articulated that as a kid, I, I've always gravitated towards that. And so uh, Robin Williams being obviously the voice and being from San Francisco, it made it more real to me. So to go back to your story, Peter Coyote, who's another big San Francisco figure, particularly in the 60s and 70s, is an artist slash activist. I think more people who are in the know, at least with San Francisco culture and histories, particularly of activists in the 60s, would sort of laugh at my <laughs> the way that I knew him. What was the, the doctor at the end of E.T.? Oh, right. <laughs> um, so as a kid, you know, that, that, that held a lot of cachet for me. Right. And my parents were friends with, with him. And uh, I said I wanted to be an actor to my parents. And God bless them. They were like, OK, well, let's, let's figure that out. Let's ask. Let's ask Mr. Coyote. And so I cold called him from the school's <laughs> roster. And I just said, hi, Mr. Coyote. This is Darren Chris. Uh, I I want to be an actor. I, I just remember like going, like taking the phone and like hiding in like like a, a closet or something in the house and just like just shaking. Because you're seven years nervously. old at this point. Yeah, yeah, seven or eight. Yeah. And just so nervous. And he, I remember him being very sweet and prob- probably uh, very endeared that this, you know, little squeaky voice yeah. is like, I want to be an actor. <laughs> He's like, oh, um, okay. And I think he talked to my parents and very quickly enrolled 
in the Young Conservatory at the American Conservatory Theater. Which, which is a place that's produced so many great... I mean, I think Denzel was there at one point. Not yeah. necessarily the... the, the young, youth, yeah, right. yeah, so the, the ACT as an institution has had a lot of great people. I mean, the, the MFA program at ACT is Denzel and, and at Benning. I mean, there's a, there's a whole list of people. But I was at the Young Conservatory, so I was one of the tykes running around those MFA students. Yeah. A lot of people that have not gone on to do great things. Elizabeth Banks. Oh, yeah. I think probably when Elizabeth was there, I was like a kid running around. <laughs> but you were there for eight years, right? Well, no, I was there until I graduated high school. So I oh, was there. Always. So probably, yeah, from, yeah, it's eight years. So I enrolled when I was nine or 10 all the way until I graduated. Wow. And then I continue to do stuff. There, and they so. were simultaneously, you were doing, I guess, outside, you were part of a troupe outside of the school as well, like doing musical stuff. Or was that associated with the school? It wasn't associated with the school at all. This is cool. That you know, all this stuff. <laughs> I'm, I'm very touched. So yeah, I, I enrolled in this school and that was kind of the after school thing. I'd go to class and that's my earliest memories of getting an education and a lot of stuff that I now hold as sort of just common knowledge but the truth is I was introduced to early like a lot of plays and certainly a lot of musicals and songs that we now know as standards but you know when you're 10 you don't you don't know that you don't, you've never heard of anything from you know Stephen Sondheim right um so yeah I was doing those after school and kind of having a little community of friends from that but Obviously, I also went to school, mm-hmm. and because of my involvement at the Young Conservatory, yeah, I would go out on auditions for like kid roles in local theater companies. And mm-hmm. there was a company called Forty Second Street Moon, which did concert versions of forgotten or lesser known musicals. And by concert versions, for listeners that aren't uh, don't don't go to those kinds of things, so that, you know, you have book in hand, very minimal, very minimal props, black chairs, and they'll do like. You know, like a piano at most. And yeah, I, I did a musical called Fanny, mm-hmm. which is if you do know that Let's show. Let's look around, right? Yeah. The movie, I think. Yeah. yeah, if you know that. People really love that score, but uh, it's, it's a lesser known thing. And I ended up doing two more shows with them in the course of my grade school years. The conservatory, though, so that's basically, that's that's not on top of school. That's your school, right? That's no, no, no. That was on top on of top school. On top of school. So you're in regular that was, school. That was on top of, like, my, God, I'm telling you, man, my mom... <laughs> Um, uh, is a superstar just because you know I see kids now that like take Ubers <laughs> which is really weird but you know this woman had to like cart me around from place to place before I was old enough to take public transportation I I was taking violin lessons and doing that and like which I know you probably have no information on because why would that be there but you know that was like a big part of my life after yeah. school doing that and then doing like recitals and concerts and summer camps like playing the violin which mm-hmm. was like a huge part mm-hmm. of my young life so doing that and then going to ACT and then, yeah, I like also went to school and did like the school shit of being a kid. And, and this troupe. And that troupe. And also I played sports. <laughs> so like I played basketball. And, she now so. wishes you came a little later when there was Uber. Yeah. She could just pop you in. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I've, I've, I've made sure to thank her in, yeah. in kind and I hopefully have <laughs> repaid in some kind of, you know, paying it forward way in the years that would follow. <laughs> well, was it from this troupe, though, that was really the troupe seemed to focus on musical revivals? Was that when you first realized you had a very nice voice as well I, I think my musical training is kind of the the real crux of of how I get to do all the things I get to do I never thought of myself as a singer I think as a kid it's different because I need a kid that can sound okay right. you don't need this like virtuosic singer <laughs> as a kid so I never thought oh man like I'm a good singer if anything I always had not really a chip on my shoulder but I was surrounded by kids that I thought really had incredible voices, mainly because, you know, I never had like a vibrato or like a big booming voice. I wasn't doing opera like 
I could sit and sing, you know, melodies to myself. And I'd like to think that I could sing on pitch. Mm-hmm. And again, it goes back to my musical training. I think a lot of people, if you've ever studied violin or particularly Suzuki or ear training, like there's a real, I didn't know this at the time. I do now that there's a real attention to specificity and tone that kind of got instilled in me at a pretty early age, which appears in every facet of my life, specificity and dynamics, whether that's in acting or or putting anything together. There's sort of an ethos that has, that has pervaded a lot of my things in life. But yeah, I never really thought I was like a, a great singer. I just, I liked to sing. Somebody the other day, just asked me, I was, I was with some friends last time. And they're like, have you always just been a performer? And I was like, no. And I've always been afraid of the idea that I would hate for anybody to ever think that I was that kid that just like needed to be out there performing. There are, there are people and kids that need that. And I never really felt that I, I never, it's probably the glee factor because people think from glee, it, it's almost like the modern day Mickey and Judy, let's go down to the bar and put yeah. on a show. And so I think because we were introduced to you, most of us through that, that you kind of assume that these kids on that show who are like that had some sort of similar yeah. you know, situation. But you're saying not no, really. No, I've never really been, I, I don't like need attention. I've never, <laughs> and people find that hard to believe. Right. I really truly believe that my interest in performing is, it's like a public service. Like I, I just want people to feel connected and I want people to, Again, it's the th- same thing with experiencing the genie and seeing strangers yeah. having this sort of catharsis mm-hmm. together, whether it be comedic or, or, or sad or some kind of emotional response. I just like bringing joy to people. And if that means that I have to get up on stage and do something, then I can hopefully try and facilitate that experience. But it's definitely not like an ego thing. Like, I must be on the stage. Right, I live right, right. for applause. What I live for is people being able to lift themselves up. And again, if I can be any cog in that machine, then I do enjoy that. But I, I'm never the type of guy that's like, all right, everybody shut up, listen to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm not about sort of me. I'm more about just sparking, like activating people's interest in each other, I guess. Well, so I guess I'm wondering then if that's the case, at what point did it first occur to you that this might be something you'd want to do professionally? Because I know for a lot of people, they maybe reach that conclusion just before college and they skip college and they come out here and they try to make it happen right away. You actually went off to college at a very good college, University of Michigan. And I just wonder, why did you do that? And were there things that you ended up doing there that have been beneficial, that you would have been a a lesser actor out here having not done? I'm really lucky. I've always wanted to do this since, uh, since day one. There's not a day of my life that hasn't worked towards doing exactly what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's just luck. I had supportive parents. I had a specific idea of, of what I wanted to do with my life at a really young age. And, and I think when I went to college, I remember talking to my roommate and I was like, when did you get into theater? He's like, probably like junior year of high school. Mm -hmm. And I was so baffled (laughs) because I'm like, that's so late. Right. But you know, that's what college is for. You realize that your experience isn't the only way to experience life. Everybody mm-hmm. comes at life from very different avenues. And so I realized like, wow. And even, you know, even now in my thirties, I can say, well, that's pretty early too. Yeah. You know, like yeah. some people found, you know, I, I know people that went all the way through college and then had jobs, you know, consulting and yeah. then they went into acting in their late twenties. So, yeah. you know, it, it, it can happen at any time. So for me being a city kid, I was really attracted to Michigan because I grew up in such a progressive 
world that I really idolized and fantasized the other of the college movie college, you know, that that stereotypical magical place that you've seen, you know, in, in media your whole life. And Michigan has that in spades. It has this real storied history and yep. this, it has a prestige and a football team and, and frat houses and right. stuff. You know, I wasn't going to be in a frat or anything, but I just I liked the, the idea of it right. being around me, particularly it, growing up in a like urban environment that sounded really fun. Was it important that the place that you went to have a strong theater program as well? Yeah. I mean, Michigan has a really great theater program. I. I'm not throwing our department under the bus by any means, Mm -hmm. but it's undeniable that the shiny golden child of the University of Michigan's uh, sports. uh, No. Well, I was going to say of the performing arts. Well, that is uh, obviously, yes, of course. (laughs) Yes. I think if it had to, if it was between sports or the performing arts program, I definitely think, you know, the money would go to more bleachers at the big house, (laughs) which I sound like I'm indignant about, but I, listen, I love going to the big house, so I'm not, I'm not throwing any shade at that. (laughs) We have a very prestigious musical theater department. A lot of those kids have gone on to do a lot of amazing things and they are really an extraordinary department that is extremely competitive. People think I was in that, which I'm very flattered by. I was Definitely not in that. <laughs> this goes back to my sort of complex as a kid, yeah. like seeing people sing and dance. I was like, wow, these guys can do that. Mm-hmm. That was not me. I was in the bastard cousin theater, just acting mm-hmm. department. I call it the Chekhov and cigarettes department <laughs> and black box stuff. So that's what I, I was studying acting. Right. And I always loved musical theater. Right. I thought was awesome. I just never thought it was something that I would do. I was friends with all those guys and I still am to this mm-hmm. day. But yeah, I was I was in the acting department. So as far as those things that you learn at Michigan, I think, yes, there are specific things that that I certainly learned that carried me into the future. You know, who knows if I would have learned that in other places? You know, we all have access to the same books and, you know, hopefully all departments have great teachers. And I think the most beneficial thing about having gone to Michigan is just having been around other people that were also equally as passionate as I was. I said earlier that one of my favorite things about myself was being Filipino. I think second, if not a close tie, is is the fact that I went to the University of Michigan. I'm literally like, wearing no, a sweatshirt I was say, I'm right now. <laughs> I I don't I, that wasn't even conscious. I just constantly I roll get around that with Michigan sense, flag. From, I have a lot of good friends who actually would have overlapped with you at some point there, and maybe a year or two ahead, and the depth of feeling that they have for their school I you know I, I really liked where I went to school but I can't say that I, it, it was that kind of they there's something in the water I don't know maybe they brainwashed us which I'm <laughs> like maybe I've stock you know Stockholm syndrome or something. Like, right. I, I just love it I think and there's a huge percentage of people that went there that really obsessed with it I mean I consciously do wear Michigan gear when I travel yeah because I, I can't tell you man like in an airport I'll average on average two to three people just when you walk by go blue <laughs> not yeah. even necessarily because you're, you know, somebody who. No, yeah. no, 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 no. The most interesting thing about me is because I have a block M on me somewhere, right. and somebody sees it a mile away, and they shout it from across a hall, or That's like so funny. it's and it, people of all ages and from all walks of life. It's pretty cool. So when you graduated, I think in '09, right? Yeah. Where did you go? Because my understanding is it was with other Michigan theater guys like yourself that you ended up doing the thing that first kind of brought you to any form of widespread attention, which was some stuff that ended up on YouTube. Can you just connect the dots? You graduate. Absolutely. You know, I was going to say, and now it's a perfect segue that, you know, the University of Michigan and the town of Ann Arbor was kind of like Hogwarts. It was this place that I really, <laughs> I loved so much. and I love my friends there so much. And, you know, I'd leave and I'd be so, bu- like, I couldn't wait to get back. I took summer 
summer sessions for like three, two or three summers just so I could hang out in Ann Arbor. It was like my favorite place. So like a lot of theater kids in college, people do shit for fun all the time. It's just meant for your buddies. Like it's never meant to be seen by anybody outside your little your little microcosm. Mm-hmm. So throughout college, we did a ton of shows. I, or at least the friends that I would end up doing the show with, they did everything from like a, a Hobbit musical that was scored with Celine Dion songs. <laughs> that was hilarious. You know, they, we did these things all the time. And senior year, we did a Harry Potter show. It was called HP the Musical, <laughs> which we were, you know, clear was not a Hewlett Packard right. musical, <laughs> contrary to popular belief. We, yeah, it was just another thing that we always did along with the other shows that we were doing in college because God knows I was, I think by the, at that point I was directing a play, I was in another one and I was like playing gigs mm-hmm. with my band. So I was all over the place. It was just another random thing. And they asked me if I could write some songs for it. And I'm like, sure, because I was that guy that, I was the music guy. Right. In, I was a musical theater guy, but I was a music guy. I played in bands. That was a thing. They knew I wrote songs, so they asked me. And I ended up playing Harry. And we happened to have filmed it simply because... I think because there was a class that was doing like a multicam mm-hmm. setup or something. So that was a, a great sort of fun success and a great little blaze of glory to graduate on mm-hmm. where we had a lot of, you know, people we didn't know showing up to see this thing. And that was it. That was it. We made DVDs of it and we cut it together simply because we had this footage. And, you know, we graduated and everybody moved to Chicago or New York or wherever, L.A., and instead of where'd you go? Uh, so I went. To, I came to Los Angeles. Oh, right. I was always going to go to New York and be in a band with my brother. Mm-hmm. Whole other story. But I had some friends that moved to LA, and before my senior year, I came out here to visit and I met some people. That's a whole other story. Right. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, but it's one of these weird things. We just met people, and then right. it was a Michigan thing. I right. met I met a woman who went to Michigan from Ann Arbor, who was an agent, right. and you know, then I just I was like, well, I guess I'm going to go to LA now. Yeah, I never thought I would. So so I came straight away here, and we ended up. You know, if I was to, to send this DVD out to everybody around the country, you have to go to Walgreens right. and, and buy the DVDs and you have to print them all. Right. And then you got to put them in boxes. Then you got to like get everyone's hard copy address. So it was a lot easier to put it on this new website and cut it up into pieces and send people links via email. And so we put up on this new website called YouTube. And that was just kind of what we did. And, and it just blew up and right blew away, up. right? Yeah, it was crazy. It was terrifying, actually. Well, as you say, I read you had pretty mixed feelings about this. Yeah, it was not a good thing because it wasn't meant to be seen by anybody. <laughs> and it's laden with inside jokes that are only funny to us. Right. And like all things on the internet, unless you were there, context is immediately <laughs> removed, right? And nobody right. is nobody knows why things are, you know. So for the record, this was not, I mean, we had Allison Williams on here a few months ago, and she had a thing that blew up on YouTube, but I think it was intended as a vehicle to maybe get noticed as in her case, she wanted to kind of show that she stood apart from, you know, whatever her dad did and just to get noticed for her talent. This was not a deliberate thing to we get noticed. We weren't that smart. Allison's a smart <laughs> cookie. That makes sense. Us, not so much. We're right. idiots. Also, the word social media wasn't a thing yet. Right. It wasn't a platform and nobody really knew how to it just it, it, there was nothing right so when we put it on youtube it was like i said it was more just easy to get to our friends and so when you have over hundreds of thousands of views in a, in a few days and or a few weeks and you were the we were the number one subscribed channel in over 50 countries this was horrifying because we were like <laughs> if we knew you know mike ozzy 42 was going to watch this we would have color corrected it the sound is garbage like how's anybody supposed to understand this right but Ironically, I think that's what people gravitated towards. There was a sort of scrappy accessibility to 
this sort of Mickey and Judy thing of like yeah. these guys are just putting on a show. Right. And it was also right towards the end of the movie franchise. That was also not calculated. It's right, just right, we right. just happened to put it out. <laughs> so we had a lot of things in, in our favor. And suddenly I was getting flown out to New York and I'm these calls with producers. We were like the scrappy new kids. Like, are you good? I was going to be a composer. This because so at this point, just to make sure I have the chronology right, you've had through like you're saying some kind of a freak Michigan meeting an agent out in L.A., mm-hmm. Totally unrelated to the. I appreciate YouTube you're thing. trying to follow this because it is complicated. No, but it's. I mean, it's interesting because I think a lot of people listen to this wondering, particularly how people wound up in the business and getting their first breaks and whatever. So, for you, you graduate, you have through this Michigan interaction, you end up with an agent. Mm-hmm. You come out to LA to see what that can lead to. This thing takes off. Independent of your agent, you're now being sought out for different things. And so that's a really important point to make. So at the time, this is 2009, there is a massive disparity between the cultural force and influence of like teenagers on the Internet Mm -hmm. and the people in charge. Mm -hmm. Right. So so production companies, record labels, media juggernauts. They don't have digital departments yet. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows how to mobilize digital content or, or, or monetize it yet. So we show up and we're making noise on the internet and people don't know. Like, like we're selling records, right. we're hitting Billboard, and it's not just one person. It's a whole collective of people fronted by me and a couple of the friends that kind of started the company. So You're hitting Billboard in the sense that you then put out separate stuff oh we put out rec because they're all mu- the music from these shows would would hit billboard charts oh my and gosh. so you know i had my first billboard you know like number ones and stuff like that that from cast albums that but, oh sorry you're talking now about glee oh uh, no I'm no you're about- pre-glee you're this, hitting this billboard is like, this is like two years before glee from yeah. the troupe that did the harry potter thing oh yeah I didn't realize that. Oh yeah, that was like my. This is like we're talking. This is my first big break. So this was sort of the calling card for Glee. Oh yeah, big time. Like obviously Glee's a whole other can of worms. Right. I would say my first like Star Kid to me, which is the company that was was the company that we started after this thing blew up. I got it. Um, I was wondering where Star Kid factored. Okay, and what so Star so Star Kid yeah. is the name. So this musical happened, yeah. and we called the channel Star Kid Potter, which is a reference to one of our right. things in the show. It's uh, the channel's now called Team Star Kid. That became its own kind of brand. And what I was going to say about this sort of disparity between what's going on, on the internet and what people understand yeah. in offices is that we were kind of moonlighting as these subcultural superstars on our computers right but during the day we were you know struggling actors i'm going on auditions for commercials we're working at restaurants and bars i'm working at Maggiano's in los angeles i'm playing the piano and there's this weird thing where there's this exciting thing happening when we open up our laptops when we get home but it didn't have any concrete value right, to the people that are having a job. Yeah. Out of it or so what? the people that were ahead of the game, there are a lot of people in the Broadway world that were like, oh, we, you know, we were having calls of like, maybe I was going to, I was going to give up acting. Like, this is great. I'm going to be yeah. a composer now. Like, I love writing songs and this yeah. is great. That was going to be my livelihood. So we ended up starting a company, mm-hmm. calling it Star Kid, and we ended up writing right after the success of the first show. A show called Me and My Dick, and that was our first big (laughs) billboard sort of thing. I mean, and by the way, when I say big, I mean, this is relative to what we were expecting. Well, I mean, you're a year out of college and you're on the billboard charts. That's pretty good. Yeah, that was wild. So there was a lot of things that were percolating kind of simultaneously. Well, to that end, uh, what was Eastwick? mm, 
So Eastwick was my first TV gig. I got out here and I booked a, a, a TV gig. I got my SAG card relatively quickly. This is in the midst of all the YouTube stuff. This is all up. at the same time. All, okay. When it rained, it poured. I literally got <laughs> to LA and then when like two months I booked this TV gig, right. which a lot of actors can tell you, you know, it felt, I felt like hot shit because I got this right. job, but you know, I did like maybe three or four episodes and right. the show was canceled, but it was my first time working on television on a network show for yeah, for a ABC. SAG job and it yeah. was e- extraordinarily exciting but while this is happening this Potter thing's going on and we're going to like conventions and stuff right. and yeah it really turned my life in a, in a really kind of crazy direction so as soon as Eastwick ended you know there I was again as you know going to auditions and stuff but also flying out to these conventions and writing content for Star Kid and so we had these two shows that we did. It was a very Potter musical. And me and my dick and having a pretty large internet presence. Mm-hmm. And we were written up in, in like Entertainment Weekly. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of cool things that were happening. And I was about to write our third show. I was going to do all the music. And we were moving the company to Chicago. And This I was, was Starship. This was Starship. And okay. I was on the phone with my friends sort of talking about right. what we were going to do and you know how long I was going to be in Chicago for and what lease we were going to sign on theaters and apartments while we were there. And that's when... I auditioned, and I had auditioned for Glee many times before, just like anybody goes out for NCIS or whatever. Like I, I didn't think twice about these things. You just, you're an actor. You audition it was your for a agent living. Coming to you and saying we've got something for you, potentially go out for Glee. Go, or was yeah, you yeah. saying I'd like to be on Glee? No, I just went out for it, like yeah. like anything else, like truly like any other audition that I treat with the same amount of. You know, because they all mean maybe getting a job. And you were still, as you mentioned, playing piano at Maggiano is your primary source of income at that point. Yeah, yeah. Basically, so, and and trying to monetize stuff off Star Kid and right. selling merch and CDs and stuff and playing gigs, yeah. So having already now not booked the first, I think it was three times you said you went out for Glee. Mm-hmm. Now, did they specifically ask for you to come back and audition for this guy Blaine, or had it? What was that one no, that I mean, did know, pan out? I mean, I think a lot of actors understand this. You know, the agents, you know, foster relationships with casting directors, and you know. I just wasn't right for those things. So because I was a, a musician or and sort of a sort of singer, they you know they would just keep me in mind for stuff. I would just keep going out. So I auditioned for that, and you know I booked it in like a week, and then suddenly I was there, and I had to suddenly call these guys in Chicago, being like, I don't know if I can do this musical anymore. I can't go to Chicago. So I was doing my entire everything that was blowing up on Glee for mm-hmm. me. I was experiencing while I was trying to finish writing the score for this other musical which in was Chicago, a too for you. which is a huge priority. Yeah. And at one point, there's a really cool. I have like a screenshot of it on iTunes. There was a week or so where the number two, the one and two of top downloaded albums were. The Warbler album mm-hmm. and my Starship oh, that's great. cast album. That's great. And they would kind of reverse in ones and twos for for a day. It was pretty cool. I was like trying to compete with myself. Yeah. Well, let me just ask you though. So the audition that did work out and getting you the part on Glee. Do you remember what that entailed? What you had to do? Sure. For that? I just went on tape. That was it. I just. But what out. did you? What numbers or what did you do? Uh, I did. You know, they they said do a, a a contemporary song and and a and a classic song. And I, I I think I think it's just saying. Baby One More Time, because I mm-hmm. thought that was cheeky yep. and funny. Right. And the other one I did more of a classic, I did a Rogers and Hart song, which is a song I would have learned having done 42nd Street and Moon, right. you know, like 15 some odd yeah. years prior, a show called Babes in Arms. And I did it. It's a classic, you know, uh, Where or When yep. is, is the standard. And so I, I sang that. And then I did a monologue from the show. And I remember I also was at a point where I was like, okay, I'm... The acting thing isn't going so well. I, you know, I've had long hair most of my life. And so I got a haircut 
the morning of that audition because it said like a cleaned up Tom Ford type. And I was like, you know what? This is a pretty big gig. Yeah. Like this is poised to be uh, the boyfriend role to a fan favorite character. Right. Like I'm going to go the extra mile here and try and leave nothing to the imagination. I remember like having weeks of deliberation between my age and being like, I think I should cut my hair because I was playing kind of these character you know, roles with the big hair. Right. And so the old adage is, you know, change your name, get a haircut, get a job in showbiz. <laughs> I didn't change my name, but I definitely, um, right. you know, I, the haircut, you know, made a certain look and, and then I got that part. And I have to say, after mm-hmm. I booked it, I really owe my tenure on that show to these star kid fans and the sort of nexus of internet fandom really raising its hand because I think it's around this time that people around Ryan Murphy were being, you know, were telling him you should really start a Twitter account. And so guys like Ryan Murphy are seeing these things about Starkid and they're asking, well, who the, what the fuck is Starkid? Right. Who is this? Who are you? Right. What, what does this all mean? You think it might have influenced him to make the call? Well, not him specifically, but I think there was sort of a, I think how well the character was received and how, at, at least numbers wise, how you know, how well the singles did that I got that were recorded. I really owe a huge debt of gratitude to this huge, very engaged, very avid subculture that I think extended the life that I was, I I think it was just supposed to be a little guest character that, you know, ended up keeping on that show for six years. So I think it was the alchemy of obviously the phenomena of Glee, but this sort of like left field extra boost booster pack that came with, you know, being this part of this other, yeah. you know, for two years, which I think people really take pride in. Like we knew this kid when he was right. just it was starting ground swell. So you joined the show in November, 2010. It's now, it was in the second season at that yeah. point, right near the end of the second season. I can only join Ryan Murphy shows if they've had a successful <laughs> Emmy winning right. first year. That's right. Well, in this case, I'm going to ask you a question that I am pretty confident. I know your general answer to, but I want to just put it out there because for many years, a heterosexual actor who played a LGBTQ part would be asked, you know, or, you know, there'd be comments, this is so brave of you. This is so, you know, things like that. And I know you got this question a lot. So I just want to, so people know how you handled it. You know, again, keeping in mind, you're a guy who's playing at Maggiano at that time. Did you have any pause about taking on a part of a homosexual character here who would be the love interest of Chris Culver's character, Kurt Hummel, or is that a thing of the past for oh, people? No way, man. I mean, I I, I would have paid a lot of money <laughs> to, you know, if that was an option, You're right. you know, I would have raised the money to do that. I would have given whatever I could to do right. that part. Not because it's a gay character, but because it's it's a good character. It's an right. interesting part. Right. That's such a secondary thing to, to what made it interesting. Yeah, it's a good question, though. I mean, it sort of varies from person to person. Again, you know, representation is a very important thing to people. And I think as our conscience expands with, you know, casting and, and our awareness of, of who we're affecting and, 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 and who we're representing is, is becoming a little more sharpened, I think. Well, there's recently, and I want, I'm going to just ask, because you have been a great ally of the LGBTQ community between Glee and Hedwig and now playing this character, Kunanen. But, you know, the thing that's now percolating, it's interesting, is that particularly it's there's a couple of debates that I, we try to cover here just because it's, it's in the ether right now. Should cisgender actors be playing transgender characters? That's one thing that's come up. Now it seems to have even expanded to, to some extent, should heterosexual actors be playing LGBTQ characters? On the one hand of the ledger is the argument that, you know, 
people are actors. They should be able to play any character they want. On the other hand, there are people saying, you know, if this happens, it's depriving a person who is that orientation of the chance to play that character. How do you navigate yeah. these things? It's it's a tough thing. I think by the time we land on, we or if a casting director lands on somebody, I think people tend to think that was the only choice. Mm-hmm. Where is casting directors pull their hair out, you know, debating over a lot of different types of people. And while I can't attest this firsthand, I, I'd like to believe, especially nowadays, you know, people are trying to cast their net as wide as possible. And it is tricky. You know, if you're thinking of, a, forget sexual orientation, race or age or anything, it's, it's hard to f- find the right person in general. That's already a real hard uphill climb. And I certainly hope that in, in the case of Let's let's take this sort of extraordinary step that Ryan got to take with Pose yeah. of the largest trans representation on, on a large television show. And, you know, it takes somebody like Ryan Murphy to really be able to say, OK, we're going right. to we're going to cast these folks. And and that was really a wonderful thing. It wasn't easy for him to find everybody, you know, and I have to believe that the casting rooms are, are really doing their best to find people. But it's an it's a tricky thing. I mean, certainly for me, it's not lost on me. I'm not an idiot. I, I understand that like look, cisgender, straight male playing these gay characters, that hasn't been a, a conscious, ooh, I must only play gay characters. That's been just an honest to God coincidence because there's such there's such different people yeah. that their homosexuality is sort of the the least of the things that, that make them interesting. Certainly part of their story, but not the the central part of their narrative. But I do think about that now, you know, if, if roles come by that are LGBT leaning, I, you know, I go, gosh, you know, guys, I really think would be insensitive to the gay community. If I was to take another role, I think they'd have my head, you know, and I would to- totally <laughs> un- understand that. So I'm certainly cognizant of it. I think while it is very tricky, I think the discussion and the questioning is really, really important. And I think it's good that we're uncertain. And I, I hope we can find some kind of balance because, yeah, I don't really have a have no, an no, answer. Nobody does. It's, it's interesting. It is, it is really tough. I think at the end of the day, I think as long as the stories are being represented with care and compassion, hopefully... You know, I'm not saying the casting should matter because it it does matter. But I think the story itself should do the people involved or the people represented uh, justice in hopes that it can bring more openness to to the world in general. But it is it's tricky, man. I got I got no answers for it. I'm I'm definitely glad I'm not a casting director. I don't (laughs) I don't envy those folks at all. Well, let's just let's chronicle a little bit how just chronologically this panned out. You start again in November 2010 on Glee. You almost immediately, I guess, the the big thing for a whole, you know, the thing for, I guess, a half season there was are Blaine and Kirk going to get together? But in terms of the the music aspect of it, your first big number there would have been the Teenage Dream mm-hmm. cover, which let's just state for listeners who may not remember, may not know, fastest selling Glee single ever, reached number eight on the Billboard Hot 100, certified as gold in the U.S., how quickly did you appreciate that you as a character were going over very well from the music aspect and also people were now really invested in seeing what would happen with your and Chris's character? I know Ryan said he immediately realized he's got to drag this out as long as he can yeah. because the audience is is on the edge of their seat. I was lucky because I had a real bird's eye view of the whole the whole experience. Glee was a massive hit before I was on it. Yeah. 
I was in senior year of college, even though I had gone, you know, it's funny. I was mentioning earlier how my summer going into senior year, yeah. I came to LA right. and I met some people. One of the first auditions I went out for was this pilot called Glee. Really? So by the time it came out, it was the Super Bowl. <laughs> I remember seeing this. I'm like, oh, this is that show I went out for. <laughs> and I started seeing it bubble right. up into this huge kind of phenomenon. I remember reading it in the New York Times, like right before I was graduating, probably around the time I was doing a very Potter musical, right. reading like in the New York Times, the Glee kids at the uh, Obama egg hunt. And I was like, geez, this thing is right, huge. They're at right. the White House. That's insane. <laughs> so I had this relationship with it as this pop cultural force. So when I joined it, I really felt like I, I had full objectivity. Like, oh, my God. Like, I, I, I didn't start Glee. Right. I'm not Glee. Right. I never was and I never will be. <laughs> it's really the original kids that kind of, to me, are the, the really the core of that show. So having said that, all these things are happening that was such a lightning in the in a bottle moment that I just I was lucky that I had enough distance to kind of appreciate the absurdity and, and amazingness <laughs> of all of it. Chris Colfer's character, Kurt Hummel, was a really wonderful character for television at the time. It was a really uh, exciting moment for, for TV and people loved his character and I certainly enjoyed that character. And so, you know, I, as an actor getting to play this character that he may or may not end up with, got to ride the coattails of that excitement. Obviously, Glee was having a moment. The song Teenage Dream itself, it's a fucking awesome song. It's a great song. You can't go wrong there. So all these moments sort of made this incredible cocktail of things that really were out of my hands, where I feel like I was just kind of dropped in Operation Darren drop right into the right amount of well you still you know, had things. to pull your weight and, and you did hopefully uh, yeah I mean <laughs> that, that's I, look that's that's the thing that I can't really explain but I think the majority of pieces that were put into play were things that I had no control over so as such I had a really kind of fun time just going holy shit this is, this is insane so Glee makes you more recognizable than you've probably certainly been at any point, even though you'd had this this underground success. You are getting to do things that I'm sure you probably hope but didn't really think would be possible, like Broadway. Yeah, you went you, in there you nailed for it. how to succeed in business without really trying for a few weeks there. On the other side of things, I don't think people, because it's a fun show to watch, people don't necessarily realize how hard it was to make. You mm-hmm. guys, and I, I'll quote back something you said, Quote, Glee is incredibly chaotic. It's really hard to do. I mean, you're shooting like four or five music videos a week, plus writing the new ones, casting the new ones, 22 a year. You were also writing some songs. I know that you got an Emmy nomination for one in 2015. What was your, as you look back at that whole chapter, before we move on to the closing one here about American Crime Story, just how do you balance those those factors of things, the great things, but also the the challenges? Well, I look, I had the blast. I had an absolute blast, and that's just not some polite PR move. Yeah. I, I really am such a happy idiot, and you can ask any of my cast members or, or, <laughs> or colleagues or producers or crew members. I, I truly had th- the greatest time, mainly because, like I said, I had this bird's eye view of, like, I can't believe I'm on fucking Glee. <laughs> like, that's insane. I think it would have been harder had I started with it. You know, had I really felt like I built this thing from the ground up. It's like I didn't. Yeah. Somebody else did. It's like there's an com- insane comparison. But it'd be like if I was cast in Star Wars tomorrow. <laughs> like it already has legs, right. you know. So if I get to just like ride on its shoulders, I just, you know, I, the whole thing is just this total like you're just giddy the whole time. You can enjoy it. So, yeah, yeah I really did enjoy it. And kind of like Slumdog Millionaire where there were all these things that happened in this kid's life that ended up servicing yeah, him at this yeah, one particular yeah. pot. For me, look, I had musical training, right? So I, I, I had 
did good at ear training with singing. I didn't mind doing that. I'm an athletic guy. I'm not a great dancer, but I like dancing. And if given given the opportunity, if I have to learn something, I can because I'm a fast learner and I enjoy doing that stuff. So, okay, that didn't make me nervous. I enjoy acting and drama. Great. So I get to do a little bit of that. Oh, I have to recreate and sing like <laughs> songs all the time. I do that all the time. Right. Anyway, I've been doing that in cafes and bars right. for right. many years and I know how to interpret songs into my own thing i've been doing that for years too um so there's all these things that just unconsciously trained me for doing this and you know really also highlighted you know skills that i didn't realize were strong suits of mine and there's the ryan murphy relationship which yeah which is which which we'll get to but i just to answer your question the the chaos of all that was really great i mean it was an amazing boot camp for especially for young people yeah to understand what it's like to make something because even though I'd worked on like two or three other, you know, smaller TV series, I think, and any of those kids from the show can tell you this, like, I feel like I can can do anything now. Like working on a show like American Crime Story is a breeze. Yeah. You know, it's not because I don't like, I don't have to go to dance rehearsal (laughs) or have a hundred fittings for, you know, really ornate costumes or go to the recording studio or do all the other things that were tied to being part of a cultural phenomenon like Glee. Right. When those are out of the equation, it's it's a cakewalk. Straightforward, right? Yeah. So Glee ends after the sixth season in March 2015. You go almost immediately right into Broadway again with Hedwig, this time for several months. And I think it was during that that you first, maybe it wasn't first heard about the prospect of playing Kunanin, but that it was going to come to fruition. Is that right? So Glee ended, I think, I, I want to say February... February of 2015, and then I was in New Orleans in March of 2015 to see my girlfriend and to visit the Scream Queens kids because they were shooting the pilot for that. Right. And so I went down there, and then I had lunch with Ryan. That was the first time he mentioned this American Crime Story idea. It was before People vs. O.J. Simpson was really in production. I think they were. it was still in talks, or maybe he had just cast Cuba Gooding Jr., so it was still pretty far out. It was just very up in the air. We didn't really know how concrete the plan was. But he said he wanted to do something and about the Sandra Cunanan story. Heard of Cunanan before? I'm gonna say no. It's like a movie that you think you've seen as a kid, right. but you really couldn't mention any of the plot points. So for me, like I was vaguely aware of him, and obviously I looked him up when we talked about it, and I kind of went pretty deep into it. But then I stopped myself because I was like, if if Ryan's not actually gonna do this, I don't want to have to to well not not get my hopes up, but I don't want right. to get my head around this person's life. That's, you know, a really grim, dreary yeah, place. I don't true. have to, like, know that shit if I don't have to. So, yeah, and then, he you know, he mentioned it. And Ryan mentions a lot of stuff because he's, you know. <laughs> he's uh, putting out so much he, content. He, well, he does. I mean, he's constantly yeah. on, you know. So I didn't keep my hopes up, and I was trying to keep myself busy. And then, yeah, three years later, we, there we, there we did it. <laughs> was there any kind of conscious motivation on his part or yours, do you think, to cast you? If you've got to cast this guy who, you know, I know it's reductive but essentially is the the villain of the piece mm-hmm. to cast Thank a guy you. that is reductive yeah but I, but I appreciate you saying that yeah but yeah i mean if yeah. you have to cat, just lump it in but here we're gonna cast the guy who is mr charisma mr upbeat comedy music everything that's how that's been your screen persona to subvert that would make it all the more powerful wouldn't it to see yeah you as- it was definitely a win-win i'd like to think that even if i didn't if you came in not knowing anything about me right. i've been really delighted by the amount of people that 
we're definitely not glee demographic people that don't know me from Adam. Right. That that's the first thing they've ever experienced me right. with. And I think the effect was the same, but it certainly is sort of a meta bonus. I think if you <laughs> are yeah. coming from something like glee or, or star kid, because yeah, there's a real turn that lends itself well to the story, but yeah, regardless of where you're coming from, hopefully it was as effective as a, as a, as a piece. But right. yeah, I think, yeah, if you wanted to connect it to the grand, strategy of, of the way Ryan thinks. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a great move, but it's also eerily serendipitous. Just everything about doing this story and my obvious, you know, sort of likeness to him and our half our, Filipino, half Filipino and our yeah. same, our same ethnic background or similar at that. There are too many things that, that made this a little too perfect, right. which is really kind of creepy because, you know, I, I don't, it, it's, it, the irony is not lost on me. Right that had these horrible things, you know, not happened, I, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you. And that you were essentially living out the dream of Kunanen. Yeah, that I get to do things and, and live a life that is something that he sort would have going into, made up. made it into the Versace yeah. house that he never did. I know. Well, that's, that is another <laughs> story. Yeah, just walking in is just, was, was really crazy for me. But, so we have yeah. just three minutes left. I want to make sure, sure we cover a couple of things here. Ryan said of you, quote, he was my first and only choice. I truly wouldn't have made it without him, close quote. Did the knowledge of that, did the knowledge that you're following American crime story, the first installment, People versus OJ, does that feel like pressure? Does that motivate you to prep even harder than you maybe have before? I mean, what did go into the prep for the eight months that you guys ended up doing this, a lot of it in Miami? Whatever pressures that you would assume might come with being the second season of such a critically successful first season, that didn't occur to me until after we were done. <laughs> yeah. People were like, man, did you feel pressure? I'm like, shit, I'm glad I didn't. I didn't even think about it until now. Because they were so different, you know? If it was the same show, right. yeah, there'd be pressure. But, it, you know, you're starting completely over. So, you know, they're, they're completely different stories. So I, I didn't really ever feel right. the need to up my game any more than I would right. anyway, anyway, you know? The game needs to be up because it's an extraordinary opportunity, not only the the part itself, which is endlessly complex and interesting and a, and a real chance for an actor like me to, you know, kind of use whatever training I've, I've had for the past, you know, however many years of my life right. and showcase that in whatever way I can. But beyond that, the, the echelon of people involved, right. I mean, there's enough pressures already right. of just <laughs> being there at that moment. So. The preparation, there's not much to go off. Unlike OJ, like there's there's an overabundance of information. Right. Whereas this, it's just Marine Orth's book, right. and a lot of things that you have to uh, open to interpretation. Yeah, yeah, it's open to interpretation. I mean, Andrew's life was open to interpretation anyway, because right. everyone's account of him is different. So in a way, that kind of gave me carte blanche yeah. because you know I think people like Cuba, Gooding, you know, we know what OJ sounds and looks and talks like, and so. Right. Unfortunately, when you have famous people that that the public is familiar with, you're somehow stacking an actor's performance against our familiarity with them. And it becomes sort of an impersonation game, which it shouldn't. I feel, you know, Cuba did an excellent job of embodying the vibe of where this man might be at, as opposed to, you know, trying to do an OJ impression. So for me, because nobody knows what Andrew is like, or at least most people tuning in, it's a safety net, you know, of of, I could really do whatever I wanted. And so all you can do is try and honor the script and honor a lot of pieces that you can put together from what people, how people reacted to him and but, you know, Andrew was an actor himself. He played several different parts in the course of his life with different people right. to varying degrees. That's really fun 
for me as an actor. But again, there was things where I, I would do something and, and think, I don't know, do you, is this something Andrew would do? I don't know. I really don't know. But luckily, you know, because the people tuning in don't know either, right. you know, you can kind of just commit to something and just kind of hope that it turns out okay. Well, the last question is just this. It, it seems like with this project, the you probably had to, all of you, you at, with your performance, Ryan with the show, had to navigate a bit of a tightrope here because you are the protagonist and we tend to empathize with protagonists and see things through their eyes and feel for them and whatever. So here you are, I guess you want to humanize Andrew, but not glamorize Andrew or in any way, you know, excuse Andrew. So how did you navigate the doing of it? And what did you make of watching it stitched together with all these other people who were touched, you know, the footage of all the other people who were touched with this guy's life? Well, luckily, the thing that Andrew Kanan is most famous for is something extremely deplorable that we all kind of can agree on. <laughs> like, we, we, we know he's an antagonist from the get-go. The show's called The Assassination of Johnny Versace, and it opens up with seeing this guy at his worst. So I think the show does a pretty good job inherently just of not glamorizing him. We're not starting from zero and watching the, you know, the show, it's a coming of age tragedy. We see this, this person with enormous promise and potential having this extraordinarily sad fall from grace because we lead with the, the worst of him. We are only humanizing because we're seeking to try and find why throughout the whole thing. I think the structure of the show did us a real favor for starting off with the worst and then trying to go go from there. Because if we had just started him as a kid, then yeah, you do run the risk of just empathizing with him the entire way through. And that's sort of a weird thing because this is a real person that did horrible things and we really shouldn't. I mean, you know, when you're watching Walter White, you watch it from the very beginning and by the end when you're kind of hoping he gets away with it, you're like, wait, why? This guy's a monster. But he's also a fictional character where Andrew's a very real person. So I think it was important for us to lead structurally the entire show with this, you know, huge opening of the famous, most famous incident. I think it has less to do with my performance or our portrayal of of this character and more to do with people's aptitude for compassion. I'm such a bleeding heart idealist that I believe that, you know, this is why I love acting and why I love experiencing film or theater or television is that it's the only place where relative strangers can proactively subscribe their brain to thinking differently or to seeing through someone else's eyes. And I've said this a hundred times because I don't ever want this to be taken out of context like by no means is it a prerequisite to forgive or exonerate Andrew like that no that's absurd man like obviously not like don't (laughs) but questioning things beyond what's right in front of you is an important exercise bending your capacity for sympathy trying to see the common denominators between yourself and that person or that person and someone you know and at what point could this have been you or what point could this have been anybody and when you start asking those questions I think you get much more in touch with the real scary human elements that really connect us all and that at its core is why I love acting so much is because there's really no other world where you would you would do that. Right. Like, why, when are you ever going to go, okay, today I'm going to do this. Right. You know, you just don't do that. So yeah, I think, I think the show did a good job of really trying to ride that line. And I'm very proud of the way that we, we kind of did that because, you know, this is an extraordinarily unbelievable story. You can't believe that it happened. And, you know, Andrew is this Shakespearean character, but again, he's not, he's real, he's a real person. So yeah, I'm glad that people have felt conflicted yeah. about him. 
but that's that's the nature of doing what we do. All right. Well, it's an amazing performance, and I really appreciate you coming in to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, man. Thank I'm, you. I'm really impressed with your with your knowledge. I, <laughs> Thank I, you. Yeah, we'll do it again sometime. I love it. Yeah. Thanks again. Thanks, dude. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.